Welcome to NatSec Tech, a podcast from the Special Competitive Studies Project. I'm Jean Meserve. You would have to be living in a bubble not to have heard about the striking advances in artificial intelligence. This technology is impacting many aspects of our lives and society, but today we're going to talk about how it might be applied in a military context. Specifically, we're going to discuss a new report on human-machine collaboration, known as HMC, and human-machine teaming, or HMT. The report is a collaboration between the Special Competitive Studies Project and the Royal United Services Institute, the UK's leading defense and security think tank known as RUSI. Here today from RUSI, Siddharth Koshal, who covers the impact of technology on maritime doctrine and the role of sea power. Sid, hello. Hello, it's great to be here. Juliana Seuss is also with us. She is research analyst and policy lead on space security, part of the military sciences team at RUSI. She is also host of the podcast War in Space. Hi. Hi, Jean. Thanks for having us. Also here from the Special Competitive Studies Project, Iber Baraktari, Senior Policy Advisor at SCSP. Hi. Hi, Jean. Great to be with you again. Also, Luke Van Erden, who is Director of Defense at SCSP. Hi, Luke. Hi, Jean. Great to see you again. Super to have you all with us. I would like you first to give us some definitions. I don't know who wants to jump in on this one, but what is HMC? What is HMT? What's the difference between the two of them? Yeah, I'll give it a shot, Jean. And I think, you know, this was largely sort of a... Uh, separation that we did here at SCSP with uh, our colleagues at RUSI to try and delineate those tasks that will be performed by uh, machines and humans in collaboration that pertain to the more cognitive space, so more the decision-making aspect of it, and that's what we refer to as uh, human-machine collaboration. Uh, And then by human-machine teaming, we refer to those tasks that imply uh, execution and implementation of actions. So uh, collaboration, think of collaboration as sort of cognitive decision-making related, and then think of teaming as implementation and execution of actions. And just to be clear, we are not talking here about autonomous weapons, correct? That's correct. We're not talking about autonomous weapons, and we obviously talk about sort of the ethical implications of human-machine teaming in military operations in our report, but this report is not about lethal autonomous weapons. Sid, from a military perspective, how disruptive are these new technologies and capabilities? Um, yeah, so I think uh, there's a few uh, important effects that we could see these um, capabilities have. Uh, I think the first thing to note is that we may be uh, looking at a shift from warfighting paradigms based around precision, the idea that you have sort of permanent over, uh, or at least a high degree and high fidelity sort of oversight of the battlefield and the ability to strike it quite accurately uh, to one that's driven more by prediction. And that's partially due to trends that are exogenous to human machine teaming, you know, efforts to break up 
precision strike uh, complexes, uh, you know, the network of sensors and shooters that underpin much of what has been the Western way of warfare uh, by adversaries that have learned to target the key nodes that underpin it, uh, both in uh, kinetic terms, physically destroying them, but also through non-kinetic means, you know, electronic warfare. Uh, what that means is that increasingly uh, the relationship between warfighters and tools will need to be uh, defined by tasking, the ability to uh, to have a tool uh, execute at least some functions of what would be a set of tactical actions on an autonomous basis within a set of parameters that a, a human uh, counterpart has has delineated. So in, so in a way, uh, what becomes important is not the ability to have perfect oversight of the battlefield, uh, but rather the judgment to task assets, which may at the edge of a system uh, uh, sort of determine key decisions at critical points. Luke, would you call this revolutionary possibly? I would say it's, it is revolutionary and it also redefines and recharacterizes how we could see um, future conflicts and battles play out on the battlefield. Um, this is really is a, is a time in which um, the way that humans and machines and their interfaces um, interact with one another in a way that can multiply effects that we haven't seen before. Um, Juliana, would you say that um, right now at this date and time, that any effective and successful military really has to integrate HMC and HMT into its planning and operations? I think that's a good point you're making, Gene. I think we're already to an extent seeing the shift happen and sort of play out in the sense that we've already seen more attributable machines being integrated into operations. And um, we've certainly seen, you know, the impact that drone warfare has had uh, the Russian uh, invasion of Ukraine, that's certainly been a factor. But we're also seeing that there's increased need for sort of data and awareness and specifically battlefield awareness in conflict. So I think it's a trend that we're already to an extent sort of seeing play out. And I think we can only assume that it will, assume, uh, that it will increase in the future again. Ilbert, can you put this in a geopolitical context? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what we attempted to do with this uh, project is uh, a few things. Uh, first of all, I think we wanted to be responsive to what you alluded in your introduction, which is incredible advances in artificial intelligence that we've uh, witnessed over the past year, and which will certainly uh, have an impact on the defense uh, sector as they're having impact on the economy and society writ large. So that was one trend line that we wanted to uh, to account for. Secondly, as Ang and Juliana spoke about this uh, uh, just now, is the uh, the uh, prevalence, increasing prevalence we're seeing of uncrewed systems, uh, particularly uh, in Ukraine, uh, but also on the part of the uh, the Russians as well. Uh, so uh, these are drones across uh, different domains, not just uh, the air domain, but also the sea and the ground domains. So that was a, a, the second trend line that we wanted to, to be mindful and reflect in this. The third one is the geopolitical one, uh, which is the increasing competition, uh, uh, primarily between the US and, uh, and China, but more broadly between democracies and uh, autocracies. Uh, and the specific issue that we wanted to address there is how can we come up with qualitative offsets to quantitative advantages that uh, our adversaries may have. Uh, so obviously China has a, a very large military force. They've been investing heavily in capabilities that are purposely designed to keep us away from the Indo-Pacific, particularly from their immediate uh, vicinity. Uh, so the task for us was how can we come up with technological solutions that could offset those numerical advantages? 
And then the last point I would make, Gene, is that we wanted to make sure that as these technological advances transpire, that the capabilities between allies do not result in a breakdown of uh, interdependencies and interchangeability. Obviously, UK is uh, uh, the long, uh, the the longest standing ally of the U.S. military. So we want to make sure as the U.S. military continues to experiment and adopt these uh, capabilities and technologies that there's no uh, no growing gap uh, between U.S. military and the U.K. military when it comes to AI in particular, and also uh, when it comes to uncrewed systems. I'd love to talk specifically about some of the potential capabilities of this technology. Obviously, these technologies process vast amounts of data, and they do it incredibly quickly. What could that mean in a battlefield situation? Juliana, you want to take that? Yeah, I'd be happy to. I think one of the ones that is perhaps most easily sort of applicable or something that people can, can picture most easily is, for example, UAV controlled by a human in a contested battle space. So um, what we're seeing and sort of what we what we try to bring out in the report is that human machine teaming and human machine collaboration can very much play to the strength of both machines and humans because we do have different strengths. Um, and there's certainly opportunities to sort of you know, take harm away from, from the soldier. Um, for example, in contested battle spaces where reconnaissance can be more easily and more safely carried out uh, by machines, for example. It helps with decision-making too, doesn't it, Luke? It does, yeah. And it it has the ability to also increase the the, the way in which and the ability in which um, decision-makers are able to comprehend um, large-scale data that's being brought in and allows them to make quicker, faster, better informed decision-making um, you know, multiplying the effects, the ability to act faster and potentially overwhelm adversaries based on those quicker decision-making cycles. One of the things your report says is that this technology um, has the uh, possible impact of reducing casualties. Um, Sid, could you explain that to me? Um, sure. So uh, a critical uh, sort of objective, I think, for most Western forces moving forward is uh, the need to operate against opponents that can field uh, manpower at a scale that we probably can't match, even if uh, Western forces are qualitatively superior. You know, if you look at the Russian army's force generation plans, it expects to and probably will achieve a force of around 1.5 million under their defense minister Shoigu's uh, plans. Uh, but this also uh, applies, you know, in uh, against sub-peer adversaries. If you think of, you know, fighting in contested urban terrain, uh, the forces that often get degraded in these uh, contexts most quickly are special forces because because they tend to they tend to be used more heavily, you know. To use an example, the Iraqi Golden Division takes around their counterterrorism forces take around forty percent casualties over the course of the Mosul campaign uh, against IS. Uh, th these are rates of attrition that uh, Western forces don't uh, cannot sustain. And so, uh, a critical question will be how uh, the warfighter can be made uh, less individually vulnerable. Now, there's a few ways in which uh, human machine teaming and human machine collaboration can abet this. Uh, the first is by uh, generating a trittable mass, which can be used in contexts where a warfighter might not be risked. So one might think of, for example, uh, an expendable UAV being used against a target uh, that might not be fit for assault by uh, crude capabilities. 
uh, either to saturate its defenses or exhaust them ahead of the use of crude assets. Uh, it can also be the case that uh, autonomous uh, capabilities can be used in tandem with warfighters to um, expand the envelope of their situational awareness, uh, particularly in contested and congested uh, environments, and thereby improve their, their relative survivability. Yeah, I was just going to add where, uh, one point to uh, Sid's excellent uh, uh, summary, uh, which is that these benefits of reducing the human costs are not necessarily going to be linear. Uh, and so what do we mean by that? Is that if, you, if you're pitting a military, a, a very advanced military that has absorbed uh, human machine teaming as an essential component of its operational concepts, and you, you're pitting that military against a less advanced military that does not have such access to, uh, uh, to human machine teaming, uh, then uh, 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 certainly in that instance, you could probably see the lowering of the human cost, particularly uh, on the side of the uh, more advanced military, but not necessarily on the side of the, the military that last advanced. In case you're pitting two militaries that have some sort of a, a, a parity in terms of the human machine teaming advances, then it depends on the scope of the fight. In a more limited fight, you could only see, you could possibly see just machines fighting each other and therefore you preserve human life on both sides. But in the case of a total a total war, then the machine on machine would only constitute the first phase of those operations. You will ultimately then end up with these high casualty clashes as well. So. So it's a nuanced uh, sort of take on uh, what the uh, effects of human-machine teaming will be on uh, human costs in a battle space. Another thing mentioned in the report is deception, uh, that it might make it easier for us to um, deceive our enemies, but also might make it easier for us or them to detect when deception is taking place. Um, could one of you grab that question? Uh, it's a jump ball. Who wants to take it? I think there's a few uh, dimensions to the the challenge of deception uh, on the uh, on the emerging battlefield. Uh, the challenge uh, for most forces is that hiding is going to become uh, increasingly difficult as forces employ a range of multispectral sensors, uh, each of which can individually be counted, but which collectively form a complex that's very uh, difficult to uh, to, avo to avoid. Uh, what this means is that deception is likely to shift increasingly from uh, beating the sensor, which has been the traditional paradigm preventing being seen, uh, to beating the classification mechanism. Now, on the one hand, there are opportunities that the human autonomous, uh, the teaming of human and uh, and autonomous capabilities can provide here. Uh, for example, autonomous capabilities can be used as decoys to simulate the signatures of crude assets and draw adversary attention. Uh, to uh, for, to use one example, uh, however, equally uh, uh, they will uh, introduce uh, certain challenges for both uh, sides. Uh, the ability to ingest and classify large volumes of data. Uh, with will in many ways exacerbate the challenge for both Western forces and their adversaries uh, of, of actually hiding because it's increasingly possible to process larger and larger amounts of data. Uh, 
But as a, and as a consequence of this, uh, increasingly uh, the emphasis on dece of deception operations uh, will shift to uh, beating the algorithms upon which an opponent's classification mechanisms uh, depend. Uh, this can take the form of you know data poisoning. Uh, there uh, we've seen instances of you know an algorithm being presented with uh, images that, by virtue of having been slightly altered, lead it to make entirely incorrect classifications. To use one example. And in peacetime, it may become more and more important to, to present an opposing algorithm with precisely this sort of poison data to ensure that it misclassifies uh, information that it receives in wartime. Uh, what this will mean in practical terms is two things. Uh, firstly, deception won't just be something one does, one does when the fight begins. It will be an activity that militaries will have to engage in across both peacetime and wartime. Uh, and secondly, the, the side that has systems that are likely to misclassify uh, information by virtue of the speed at which uh, machines operate is likely to fail fast, so to speak. So these technologies, I presume, um, have a price tag and perhaps a high, hefty price tag. Do you think overall they could reduce military costs or will they increase them? Juliana? I think that's an interesting question because on one hand, um, we're obviously seeing sort of exquisite bigger systems having a heavier price tag than, for example, iteratable machines. On the other hand, to then sort of being able to defend against those, those iteratable machines, specifically drones uh, in that context, can still require quite expensive technology um, because we're just not fully set up yet to, to really counter against those. So it's a little bit of a balance. I'm not sure if any of my co-authors wanted to uh, chime in on that. So I think there's a few aspects to it. So on the one hand, there are a, a few reasons we might uh, we might have to believe that uh, attributable machines might become increasingly cheap to manufacture. Among them are the fact that there are economies of scale between uh, civilian and defense manufacturing. You know, the same capabilities can, as we're seeing to an extent in Ukraine, can be repurposed across contexts with a certain amount of modification. Uh, and that's quite useful from a cost perspective because the more that uh, producers can scale, the less the, the lower unit costs become by, by, de by default. Uh, the second factor we might look at is, um, you know, the effect of disruptive manufacturing technology capabilities, things like additive manufacturing and automated uh, assembly, which may have a significant uh, impact in terms of driving down unit costs. Uh, the challenge, however, is that, and we're seeing this in Ukraine, uh, where, you know, UAVs are being lost to uh, electronic warfare at pretty phenomenal rates. Uh, the more, the less bespoke a capability is, uh, the more vulnerable it is to adversary necessary countermeasures uh, and the and the modifications that lead to it becoming survivable on the battlefield also increase unit costs so there is an opportunity here for militaries to have more and more uh, attributable mass but they will need to mediate the trade-off between leveraging the commercial sector on the one hand and maintaining survivability on the other. And the question for uh, for both officers and and you know officials within defense will be how much survivability are you willing to trade off for attributability and and the ability to leverage commercial capability? Bear, um, what applications of this should be prioritized by militaries? 
Yeah, uh, a great question, Gene. So I would say uh, the uh, the first area that we uh, illuminate in our report is uh, how can uh, the human uh, machine uh, collaboration uh, improve their decision making. Uh, so that's certainly uh, uh, the one area where we could see the benefits uh, clearly is uh, the ability to absorb, process, and then purpose uh, uh, the information for uh, uh, decision making is uh, one clear area. Uh, a couple of other areas that we uh, we have uh, also highlighted uh, is that uh, it could also uh, help with uh, uh, what we call sustaining expeditionary forces. Uh, so if, if you think of a geographically a wide area as is Indo-Pacific, and if you see and if you think of our forces as distributed across uh, such vast uh, areas, uh, uh, these uh, uh, these sophisticated algorithms can uh, can help you. Uh, uh, sort of plan better uh, for how to sustain your forces, uh, particularly in an environment that will be uh, more contested. So uh, logistics and sustainment uh, is another one. A third area that we illuminated is what we call predictive maintenance, uh, which is that uh, you, uh, if you have a general uh, sense of uh, the rate of use of certain capabilities and uh, how frequently they break down and how frequently they need to be repaired, uh, then uh, uh, the combination of the human analysis and the uh, machine capabilities can help you anticipate those better and obviously prepare uh, better. So those are just uh, three examples, I think, where we see uh, uh, immediate uh, the utility from the uh, greater uh, uh, collaboration between humans and machines. Luke, how do militaries get ready to integrate these technologies? What do they have to do? Yeah, I think that's a really great question, Gene, and it's a driving factor in the report as well. I think one way that, uh, I guess I'll highlight three different ways that uh, militaries can take advantage of these technologies. The first one would be developing new operating concepts that allow these technologies to be brought into um, brought into the space where um, warfighters can experiment with these tools and techniques to ultimately um, gain decisional advantage both personally and using these technologies but then also to employ them um, at scale. The other one that I would say is um, to have effective interfaces that warfighters can use to interact with these. So whether that be an app or whether that be a tablet that allows these warfighters to effectively use machines to process data to give them um, quicker, quicker information would allow um, potentially an increased trust in the ability to use these. And the last one, that came up pretty frequently when we um, were talking with experts on this topic was um, the need for um, a sandbox environment or the ability for warfighters and uh, people within um, respective departments of defense or ministries of defense to experiment with these technologies to really dive deep and to play with play with these technologies to become comfortable with them because it is a relatively new um, idea but it's something that you know we interact with every day but it's in a different context. I think something I just wanted to throw in, and it's, I think it's something that we talked a lot while we were creating the report, and that's a sort of risk appetite um, and sort of creating, uh, as Luke already pointed out, you know, an environment where, you know, we can take risks and, you know, try out these new technologies and see sort of uh, what the what the right rhythm is and, and sort of how to how to integrate these technologies, but not creating, uh, you know, not creating an environment where we're setting ourselves up to fail uh, and sort of making sure that there's a sort of appropriate amount of risk 
risk, uh, where these uh, technologies can be integrated uh, to a certain degree so that we can figure out how this is all going to work before sort of integrating it at a scale where perhaps, uh, you know, the risk appetite is relatively small so that when something does go wrong, it sort of uh, hinders uh, further revolutions in the future. Sid, could you take it to a higher level? I'm wondering if these new technologies require new doctrines, new operating concepts, new ethical guidelines, those kinds of things. Um, yeah, so I'd say uh, it's often critical to the adoption of a new technology that it that it does have a guiding doctrine, which, amongst other things, you know, focuses the mind of uh, of, of a system, uh, you know, both defense and military, as it goes through the tasks of things like procurement and experimentation. You know, if we um, think of past ex uh, examples of um, successful technological change, the second offset in the U.S., you know, the adoption of the precision revolution uh, occurred in quite a disciplined, efficient way, because there was a clear challenge against which it was focused, the Soviet second echelon in Central Europe, and how to disrupt it. So I think uh, doctri a clear doctrinal focus um, will be critical. And I think here, we, we do have an answer here, which is uh, the, what the Chinese PLA calls system systems destruction warfare. You know, there is an assumption on the part of Western adversaries that uh, the kill chain, so to speak, the sequence uh, of effects from sensor to shooter upon which Western forces depend are fragile, are quite linear, are quite predictable, and therefore quite easy to disrupt. And so any doctrine to leverage human-machine collaboration and human-machine teaming, I think, has to, as its starting point, uh, begin with the assumption that beating and circumventing adversary systems destruction approaches uh, will be the key rationale for uh, absorbing uh, HMC and, and HMT into uh, into force structures. Uh, it I, I'd also agree that this will probably change, uh, you know, the guidelines, uh, the guidelines and the rules of engagement for how forces operate. You know, on on a uh, on a battlefield where uh, certain functions may have to be delegated to uh, to non-human sort of teammates within a formation, uh, questions will need to be answered regarding uh, what delegative authorities, uh, officers and soldiers uh, and sailors and airmen at every echelon have to to make uh, to uh, to to delegate uh, certain tasks uh, to to their um, to their to their non-human or uncrewed uh, capabilities, for example. Uh, I was just going to add, Gene, uh, uh, to Sid's uh, uh, great list, uh, another one, which is uh, this will most likely impact uh, how we conceive of force, uh, of designing our military forces, uh, right? Uh, is that as you increasingly bring in uh, uh, machine capabilities, uh, it, it will inevitably, I think, uh, create the demands for new talent uh, that you're going to uh, need to bring into your uh, military forces, but it will also change the task composition within existing units and within the existing military services to a point perhaps where some military occupational services may become obsolete uh, going forward, new ones will be created, and then the balance between the existing ones and the incorporation of capabilities uh, uh, may change. So I think we it it behooves us to think uh, fresh uh, also about how we go de about designing uh, military forces, both here in the U.S. and in the U.K. Both sides of the Atlantic are represented here, the U.S. and the U.K. Ilber, you you alluded to this earlier, but Juliana, I'm wondering if you could expand on how important it is to have cooperation and collaboration in this sphere if these technologies are going to be deployed to their full effectiveness. 
I think in, in spaces like this, I think collaboration and, and information sharing between states can only be helpful. Um, specifically since, you know, I, th I think for, for Europe, it's only natural to look sort of towards the US when it comes to new technologies and their adoption, um, because obviously the US has much larger budgets and therefore, you know, sometimes at least perceived to have a larger risk appetite in sort of adopting these technologies and bringing them forward. So I think it is often quite useful to have those conversations and see, you know, being able to leapfrog to a certain extent as well in terms of what has worked, what hasn't worked. Um, and specifically, you know, as, as Ilber sort of alluded to already in terms of force design, sort of what methods have worked um, to what extent is the sort of mesh network um, already fully, you know, operational, where has it worked, where are obstacles, and you know, maybe we can sort of avoid those obstacles or challenges if it's already been uh, sort of worked out by by our allies. Ilbert, do the mechanisms exist now that need to exist in order to optimize these technologies? Some things are in place, uh, uh, but I think uh, more uh, needs to be done uh, uh, to uh, fully harness the, the promise of uh, these technologies and the, uh, the concepts of human-machine teaming and human-machine collaboration. I think uh, on this side of the Atlantic, uh, in the U.S., uh, the Department of Defense uh, is taking some important steps uh, in this regard. Uh, last year, the DoD announced an initiative called Replicator, uh, which uh, uh, seeks to bring uh, thousands of uncrewed systems into uh, the U.S. military, uh, exactly for this purpose to uh, to address challenges of mass and and costs and operational risks uh, in an environment such as the uh, Indo-Pacific. Another important initiative has been Task Force Lima, which uh, seeks to mainstream uh, generative AI capabilities across the U.S. military. So we're seeing some uh, important steps being taken by the Department of Defense, but much more, uh, I think, uh, needs to be done. Obviously, we have to think about how we're going to go about procuring and acquiring uh, some of these capabilities. Uh, uh, unfortunately, on the civilian side, uh, some of these uncrewed systems are not uh, necessarily produced uh, by U.S. companies. Um, uh, China obviously has a great uh, uh, market share when it comes particularly uh, to drones. Uh, so uh, we have to think about uh, also what uh, the implications are for uh, from an uh, industrial-based perspective and what changes need to be made in order to position us uh, to better harness uh, the, this uh, teaming concept between humans and machines. I'd like you all to weigh in on this last question, which is, what are the implications if Western militaries do not leverage this technology? Luke, why don't we start with you? Sure. I think one of the main implications is that we risk uh, perhaps falling behind um, adversaries who may take advantage of it if we don't. Um, I think, luckily, we're not in that situation, um, but you could see that in the world uh, happening. I think overall, I would say the biggest risk would be a higher cost of war, whether that be, you know, human cost of war, uh, but also potentially economic. Sin? Uh, I think the risk is that two critical Western vulnerabilities will become much more acute. The first is that we are politically and uh, and demographically and economically not really set up to expend manpower at scale that opponents with potentially lower quality forces can still sustain. And we've seen this in Ukraine. Uh, the second risk is that our concepts of operations, which have been well studied and well understood by adversaries over the last three decades, will increasingly become unpicked by approaches that are explicitly designed to uh, fragment them. Ilbert, last word to you. 
Great. Thank you, Jim. Uh, so we have three immediate challenges that I think uh, uh, we will not be able to address unless we harness uh, some of these ideas we put forward. The first is uh, the recruitment uh, issue. If you look at uh, numbers from last year, uh, every military service on the U.S. side, except for Space Force, I think failed to meet its re uh, recruitment goals. Uh, so obviously, uh, th that's a complex uh, picture. Uh, but uh, in a scenario in which those recruitment challenges persist, then I think uh, uh, we're going to continue to have uh, manpower issues that could uh, manifest themselves even more uh, drastically in, in an operational setting. So that's the first one. The second one is, uh, I think, uh, uh, the cost equation uh, uh, right now. Uh, 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 currently uh, does not favor the, the U.S. military. I think if you look at uh, yeah, sort of where most of our budget uh, goes to is in these high-end and uh, super sophisticated uh, capabilities, uh, but may uh, which may not be uh, uh, you, you know delivering the effects that you need in, in an operational setting that we may encounter uh, if these uh, changes in the character of conflict persist. And the third thing is that we have uh, serious challenges, I think, to overcome in the Indo-Pacific, uh, particularly if uh, if the uh, uh, People's Liberation Army decides to uh, uh, take action uh, against Taiwan. Uh, China has been investing heavily in capabilities that seek to uh, deliberately negate our uh, military advantages. And uh, so I think uh, we need to think differently about how we uh, uh, leverage technology uh, to offset those uh, Chinese investments and regain our military overmatch, uh, particularly in, in the Indo-Pacific. Hubert Baraktari, Luke Van Erden from SCSP, and also Siddharth Koshal and Juliana Seuss from RUSI, the Royal United Services Institute. Thanks for your insights today. And before we leave, a reminder to all of you listening to mark your calendars for May 7th and 8th at the Walter E. Washington Convention Center in D.C. The Special Competitive Studies Project will be hosting the very first AI Expo for National Competitiveness and the Ash Carter Exchange on Innovation and National Security. If you want to learn more about sponsoring, exhibiting, or attending, visit scsp.ai expo. We hope to see you there. This has been NatSec Tech. I'm Jean Meserve. Take care. <laughs>